Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 7 of the Second Age of the Crusaders and the subject is the Fifth Crusade. Now this crusade isn't often talked about and I think it's a big mistake because it was actually really the last major crusade drawn from across almost the whole of Europe. As you will hear it was a very large military expedition possibly as large as the First Crusade in terms of numbers of knights and infantry although Unusually for the Crusades, the French didn't dominate it. This was because they were preoccupied with another crusade in southern France, which was the Albigensian Crusade against the Albigensian heretics. It was also a reaction to the Fourth Crusade in the sense that the Pope was determined to control it and to stop it from being misused as the Fourth Crusade had been by the Venetians when it was directed against Constantinople. Indeed, it represented one of the most serious attempts by the papacy in the Middle Ages to assert its power in Europe. It was organised by a particularly dynamic pope called Innocent III, who also tried to reform the medieval church with a whole set of decrees at a great council called the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. However, Innocent III died in 1216 before the Crusades really got going, but his successor, Honorius III, continued to oversee the Crusades. Its principal objective was to recover Jerusalem, but after a campaign in the Holy Land stalled and failed to defeat Al-Adil, who was the Crusaders' main opponent and still in control of Syria and Egypt, it was decided that an attack on Egypt itself would be the best way of weakening Muslim resources before a major attack on Jerusalem was made. This was because Egypt was the richest and most heavily populated of all the Muslim states in the Middle East, and Richard the Lionheart, who was always considered the most successful of the Crusaders in the past few decades, had always said that holding Jerusalem would be impossible without also controlling Egypt. This actually made a great deal of sense, and so the second part of the Fifth Crusade consisted of a major attack on Egypt, which really counts as one of the largest military expeditions ever undertaken in crusading history. So, as before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In 1216, Europe was in the grip of a crusading frenzy. Pope Innocent III had sent preachers across the whole of Europe calling for a crusade to liberate Jerusalem. He even wrote to the Sultan Al-Adil, telling him to give up Jerusalem before the great army arrived at its walls. But his optimism was a little premature. Gervais, abbot of Premontre, wrote to him confidentially to say that the nobles of France were ignoring the call for crusade. He also wisely advised that there should be no combined French and German expedition. The two nations did not work together harmoniously. But the poorer people were taking the cross with huge enthusiasm. They must not be discouraged by the delay. In May 1216, Pope Innocent went to Perugia to try to settle the long feud between Genoa and Pisa that both might contribute to the transport of the Crusaders. There, after a short illness, he died on the 16th of July. Few papal reigns have been more splendid or more outwardly triumphant, yet his dearest ambition to recover Jerusalem 
was never achieved. Two days after his death, the aged Cardinal Savelli was elected Pope as Honorius III. Honorius eagerly took over his great predecessor's programme. A few days after his accession, he wrote to the crusader King John at Acre to tell him that the crusade was coming. John was growing anxious for his truce with Aladil was due to expire next year. Honorius also wrote round to the kings of Europe but few of them responded. In the far north, King Ingi II of Norway took the cross, only to die next spring, and when the Scandinavian expedition started out, it was a paltry affair. King Andrew II of Hungary had already taken the cross, but had been excused by Innocent from fulfilling his vow earlier because of civil war in his country. He now showed enthusiasm, but he had another motive. His queen was the niece, through her mother, of the Latin emperor Henry of Constantinople who was childless, and he had hopes of inheriting the city. But when Henry died in June 1216, her father, Peter of Courtenay, was chosen in his place. Therefore, King Andrew's enthusiasm began to fade, but he agreed at last to have his army ready for the following summer. In the Lower Rhineland, there was a good response to the preaching, and the Pope hoped for a large fleet manned by Frisians. But here again, there were delays, nor was the news from Palestine very encouraging. James of Vitry, who had recently been sent there as Bishop of Acre with instructions to rouse the local crusaders, gave a bitter report of what he found. The crusaders in the Holy Land did not want war. It was only the military orders who wanted to fight, though the Italian colonists, who were wise enough to lead frugal lives, kept some energy and enterprise. But the mutual jealousy of the great Italian cities, Venice, Genoa and Pisa, made them unable to work together. In fact, as Bishop James discovered, the Crusaders in Palestine had no desire for a crusade. Two decades of peace had added to their material prosperity. Since Saladin's death, the Muslims also showed no tendency for aggression, for they too were profiting from the increased commerce. Merchandise from the interior filled the quays of Acre and Tyre. The palace that John of Evelyn had built at Beirut bore witness to revived prosperity. The Italian colonists happily established in Egypt. With the purchasing power of Western Europe steadily growing, there was a fine future for the Mediterranean trade, but it all depended precariously on the maintenance of peace. Pope Honorius thought otherwise. He hoped that a great expedition would be sailing from Sicily in the summer of 1217. But when the summer came, though various companies of French knights had reached the Italian ports, there were no ships. The King of Hungary's army reached Spoleto in Dalmatia in August and was joined there by Duke Leopold VI of Austria and his army. The Frisian fleet only reached Portugal in July and part of it remained at Lisbon. It was in October that the rest sailed into Gaeta in Italy, too late to proceed to Palestine until the winter was over. At the end of July, the Pope ordered the Crusaders assembled in Italy and Sicily to proceed to Cyprus, but still no transport was provided. At last, in early September, Duke Leopold found a ship at Spoleto to take his small company to Acre. His voyage only took 16 days. King Andrew followed him about a fortnight later. But the Spalatans could not let him have more than two ships, so the bulk of his army was left behind. About the same time, King Hugh of Cyprus 
Cyprus landed at Acre with the troops that he could raise. The harvest had been poor that year in Syria and it was difficult to feed an idle army. When the kings arrived, John of Brienne recommended an immediate campaign. On Friday the 3rd of November, the Crusaders set out from Acre and marched up the plain of Estrelon. Their numbers, though not great, were larger than any that had been seen in Palestine since the Third Crusade. Al-Adil, when he heard that the Crusaders were assembling, had come with some troops to Palestine, but he hadn't expected so early an invasion. He was outnumbered, so when the Crusaders advanced towards Bison, he retired, sending his son Al-Mazam to cover Jerusalem, while he waited at Al-Jin, ready to intercept any attack on Damascus. His fears were scarcely justified. The Christian army lacked discipline. King John considered himself as being in command, but the Austro-Hungarian troops looked only to King Andrew and the Cypriots to King Hugh, while the military orders obeyed their own leaders. Basin was occupied and then sacked. Then the Crusaders wandered aimlessly across the Jordan and up the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, round past Capernaum and back through Galilee to Acre. Their chief occupation had been the capture of holy relics. King Andrew was delighted to obtain one of the water jugs used purportedly at the marriage feast at Cana. But King John was dissatisfied and planned an expedition of his own to destroy the fort that the Muslims had built on Mount Tabor. Neither Hugh nor Andrew joined him, nor would he wait for the military orders. His first attack on the fort on the 3rd of December failed, though in fact the garrison was ready to surrender. When the orders arrived two days later, a second assault was attempted, but in vain. Once more, the army retreated back to Acre. About the New Year, a small band of Hungarians, against local advice and without their king's approval, planned a foray into the Bacar and was almost annihilated in a snowstorm when crossing the Lebanon. Meanwhile, King Andrew rode off with King Hugh to Tripoli, where Bohemond IV, the ex-prince of Antioch, recently widowed of his first wife, celebrated his marriage to Hugh's half-sister Melisande. There, Hugh suddenly died on the 10th of January, leaving the throne of Cyprus to an eight-month-old boy Henry under the region of his widow. King Andrew returned to Acre and announced his departure for Europe. He had fulfilled his vow. He had recently added to his collection of holy relics and it was time to go home. The Patriarch of Jerusalem pleaded with him and threatened him in vain. He took his troops northward through Tripoli and Antioch to Armenia and thence with a safe conduct from the Seljuk Sultan to Constantinople. His crusade had achieved nothing. Leopold of Austria remained behind. He was short of money and had to borrow 50,000 Byzants from Guy Embriaco of Jebel, but he was ready to work further for the cross. King John used his help for the refortification of Caesarea, while the Templars and Teutonic Knights set about the construction of a great castle at Athlet, just south of Carmel, the Castle of the Pilgrims. Aladil, meanwhile, dismantled his fort on Mount Tabor. It was too vulnerable and not worth it. Its upkeep. On the 26th of April 1218, the first half of the Frisian fleet arrived at Acre, and a fortnight later, the half that had wintered at Lisbon. There was news that the French crusaders, massed in Italy, were soon to follow. King John at once took counsel about the best use to be made of the newcomers. It had never been forgotten that King Richard the Lionheart had advised an attack on Egypt, and the Lateran Council had also mentioned Egypt as the chief objective for 
for a crusade. If the Muslims could be driven out of the Nile Valley, not only would they lose their richest province, but they would be unable to keep a fleet in the eastern Mediterranean, nor could they hold Jerusalem long against a pincer attack coming from Acre and from Suez. With the Frisian ships at their disposal, the crusaders now had the means for a great attack on the Egyptian delta. Without hesitation, it was decided that the first objective should be the port of Damietta, the key to the Nile. Meanwhile, in the Muslim world, the Sultan Al-Adil was now an old man and had hoped to spend his later years in peace. He also had worries to the north. His enemies, the Anatolian Seljuks, were now at the height of their power. Byzantium was no more, and the Byzantine emperor of Nicaea was too busy fighting the crusaders in Constantinople to disturb them. Their Turkoman subjects were settled now, and orderly and prosperity was returning to the Anatolian peninsula. Early in 1218, the Seljuks swept into the territory of Aleppo and advanced on the capital, but they were defeated. Nevertheless, the Seljuks remained a menace until the death of their leader, Kakos, next year. Up to the last, Aladil seems to have hoped that the Crusaders would not be so foolish as to break the peace. His son, Al-Kamil, Viceroy of Egypt, shared his hopes. Al-Kamil was on excellent terms with the Venetians, with whom he had signed a commercial treaty in 1208. In 1215, there were no fewer than 3,000 European merchants in Egypt. The sudden arrival that year at Alexandria of two Western lords with an armed company had frightened the authorities who had put the whole European colony under temporary arrest, but good relations had been restored. In 1217, a new Venetian embassy was cordially received by the Egyptians. The ineffectual meanderings of the crusade of 1217 had not impressed the Muslims. They could not believe that there was any danger to Egypt now, but they were proved wrong when, on the 24th of May 1218, the crusading army with King John in command embarked at Acre in the Frisian ships and sailed down to Atlit to pick up further supplies. After a few hours, the ships lifted anchor, but the wind dropped. Only a few of them managed to leave the anchorage and actually sail on to Egypt. They arrived off the Damietta mouth of the Nile on the 27th and anchored there to await their comrades. Raids. The soldiers did not venture at first to try to go onto the land as there was no senior officer amongst them, but soon the sails of the main crusader fleet appeared over the horizon. The ships came in across the bar, and King John, the Duke of Austria, and the Grand Masters of the three military orders stepped ashore. Damietta lay two miles up the Nile River on the east bank, protected on one side by Lake Mansla. It was very difficult to attack. A chain had been stretched across the river, a little below the town, from the east bank to a tower on an island close to the west bank, blocking the only channel, and a bridge of boats lay behind the chain. The crusaders now made this tower their first objective. Meanwhile, back in Syria, when the Muslims realised that the crusade was directed against Egypt, Al-Adil hastily recruited an army in Syria, while Al-Kamil marched the main Egyptian army northward from Cairo and encamped a few miles south of Damietta. But he had insufficient men and ships to attack the Christians, though he reinforced the tower. The first serious assault on the fort at the end of June failed. Oliver of Paderborn, the future historian of the campaign, 
then suggested the making of a new device for which he and one of his fellow citizens paid. It was a tower built on two ships that were lashed together, covered with leather and fitted with scaling ladders. The fort could now be attacked from the river as well as from the shore. On Friday the 17th of August, the Christian army held a solemn service of thanksgiving. A week later, on the afternoon of the 24th, the assault began. About 24 hours later, after a fierce struggle, the Crusaders managed to establish themselves on the ramparts and poured into the fort. The garrison fought on until only a 100 survivors remained, and then it surrendered. The booty found in the fort was immense, and the victors made a small bridge of boats to carry it to the west bank. They then hacked down the chain and bridge of boats across the main channel and their ships could sail through up to the walls of Damietta itself. Meanwhile, Aladil was ill when the news of the fall of the fort reached him at Damascus a few days later. He had just heard that his son Al-Muzam had taken and destroyed Caesarea, but the shock of the disaster at Damietta was too much for him. He died on the 31st of August, aged about 75. Safadin, as the Crusaders called him, lacked his brother Saladin's remarkable personality and his dealings with his nephews, Saladin's sons, had shown a certain disloyalty and underhand cunning, but he had held together the Ayubite Empire and had been a capable, tolerant and peace-loving ruler. To the Christians, he had been consistently kind and honourable, and he earned and kept their admiration and respect. He was succeeded in Syria by his younger son Al-Muzam and in Egypt by the elder Al-Kamil. The disaster to the Muslims was not so great as Al-Adil had feared. If the Christians had pressed on and at once attacked Damietta, the town might well have fallen, but after the capture of the fort, they hesitated and decided to await reinforcements. Meanwhile, many of the Frisians returned to their homes to be punished for their desertion by death in a great flood that swept over Frisia the day after their arrival. It was known by now that the long-planned papal expedition had already left Italy. There had been constant delays, but at last Pope Honorius had been able to equip a fleet at the cost of 20,000 silver marks to transport the troops that had waited for over a year at Brindisi in Italy. At their head, he put Cardinal Pelagius of St. Lucia. About the same time, two French nobles, Hervé, Count of Nevers, and Hugh of Lusignan, Count of La Marche, negotiated with the Genoese for ships to take a company of French and English crusaders to the east. Though the Count of Nevers was a notoriously bad son of the church, the Pope allowed him to pay for the transport with a tax of a twentieth their income taken from the ecclesiastics of France. The two counts were joined at Genoa by the Archbishop of Bordeaux and the bishops of Paris and other lesser potentates. The Pope sent Robert Cardinal Coursin to be spiritual director of the fleet, but without any powers. Cardinal Pelagius and his expedition arrived at the Christian camp in the middle of September. Pelagius was a Spaniard, a man of great industry and administrative experience, but singularly lacking in both tact and military experience. He had already been employed to settle the question of the Greek churches in the Latin Empire of Constantinople and had only succeeded in making them more passionate 
passionately hostile to the Pope. His coming to Damietra at once caused trouble. John of Brienne had been accepted before as leader of the Crusade. His leadership had been disputed in the previous years by the kings of Hungary and Cyprus, but the one had departed and the other was dead. Pelagius, however, considered that as papal legate, he alone was in charge. The rivalry of the various participant nations was all too clearly visible. Only the Pope's representative, he felt, could keep them in order. He brought news that the young Western emperor, the German Frederick II, had promised to follow with an imperial army. When he came, he would certainly be given supreme military command. But in the meantime, he assumed command of the expedition, convinced that he could lead the Crusaders to their greatest victory since the capture of Jerusalem in the First Crusade. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to leave any ratings or reviews, I'd be massively grateful since it really helps to advertise the podcast. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about what happened to the Fifth Crusade in Egypt. <laughs>